0: This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Episode 113. This week, New York Times best-selling author and former U.S. Air Force F-16 Viper pilot Dan Two Dogs Hampton joins us to talk wild weasels. What is a wild weasel, you ask? Well, it's sometimes a particular type of aircraft, it's sort of a mindset, I guess it's really a mission, I don't know. Here, let's let Two Dogs explain what wild weasels means.
1: It means you get to go out and pick a fight with surface-to-air missiles and anti-aircraft guns, and if you survive, you kill them. Sam stroke A, go.
2: Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft. The weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. This is episode 113. I am your host, Jello. We're talking wild weasels today. And you know what? Good news. I'm not alone. I've got Trevor Boswell helping out, and he's checking in from, gosh, where are you tonight, Boat?
3: Oh, man, I'm overseas. Not really. Kind of. (laughs) I'm in the Caribbean. I'm in Jamaica at the moment, actually.
0: Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, we're glad to have you back now. Normally at this time of the month, you'd be doing your own Warbird episode, but we gave you a reprieve this month because remind us all what you've been doing.
3: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's been a busy month. I've been uh, working on 737 training for the airline. So uh, kind of a fast and furious process the last month, month and a half of getting into the study mindset. Again, it does take a little bit of effort to spin your brain up to learning something new. So yeah, yeah i been doing that and uh, finished the training on uh, three, four days ago now, actually.
0: Well, I will know all about that here on the beginning of June. I'll be heading out for my refresher training. At least it's the same airplane, but uh, maybe we can hook up while I'm there if you're in town. Definitely. All right, so for all the world to hear, Airbus 320, Boeing 737, are you ready to make a judgment?
3: Ooh, man. I will say this. My landings were better. Previous airplane. I'll say that.
0: Oh yeah. Okay. As a first officer, you were used to the uh, right stick in the F-16 and and the uh, Airbus. Exactly right. Okay. So someday when you go back to 320 as a captain, you have to fly it left-handed. That'll be interesting. That will be. All right. Anything else new in your world or family or anything?
3: No, just psyched for the summer, getting ready to uh, get into the warmer temperatures, hit the pool, all that good stuff. What about you? What's going on in your world?
0: Well, the podcast is continuing to do well, keeping busy there. But as I said a moment ago, I'm due back for my training and I'll be returning to my previous airplane and my previous base and get this boat, you know, in our business, the uh, seniority is everything. It is. Well, there are 140 pilots in my category in LA and I'll be number 138. So
2: that's good. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But at least I won't be commuting. So, you know, I'll take it.
3: Well, when they say the standing on the shoulders of giants, apparently you're really large. We'll go with that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> we'll take that. All right. So, hey, you know the drill. Let's cover a quick couple of announcements and then we got some listener questions and then we'll get to Wild Weasels. But uh, let's see. First off, last episode, 112 on the Civil Air Patrol. Now, I'll tell you this boat, I did not expect, and it's been true so far, that this will not be our number one most downloaded episode. But I can't tell you how many emails I've received from cadets, wannabe cadets, senior members, people that just were like, wow, I had no idea. I had one guy write me and say, I joined the Civil Air Patrol. So I'm just thrilled for that. We're making a difference and that's what it's all about. Now, I wonder, I didn't even ask you, were you ever in the Civil Air Patrol?
3: No, you know, I did, while I was in ROTC, I did the one orientation flight that that you guys mentioned in the show, but uh, I never did the full on CAP participation, but after listening to it, man, I was motivated. I really want to go check out the local wing, squadron and all that good stuff and see if there's an opportunity for some old hack like me to get in
0: there. (laughs) Well, they have those senior members, so I bet you could. And then, of course, if dad is doing it, then as your kids get a little older, probably not quite ready yet.
3: Not yet. Um, not yet.
0: You know, maybe they could find their way. Yeah. yeah. So that was a good one. And then let's see, prior to that, but we released it after that, was the America's Future Series panel that I moderated. That was with some past guests, Cinco and Bond and Od. We had a good time, so we put a link to that on our Facebook page. And then just for fun, we turned it into an audio only format and re released that just a little few days ago. Also our partner, Rich Cooper, big aviation photography guru. And I say guru here with positive sense, not negative, but at any rate, he's also a writer and uh, he wrote a new article for our blog on our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And he muses about air show security. So go check that out if you're interested. And then, Boat, I don't know if you caught it, but there's been a couple mishaps recently. A couple T-45s collided in Kingsville. Thankfully, everybody was okay. They lost one airplane and damaged the other. I guess a crew bailed out. Yep. And then I didn't get any details on this, but a brand new F-15 QA, I guess they call it for Qatar, the crew ejected out of it. But there's a picture of it sitting on the deck. So I don't know what happened there. Do you know anything about that?
3: I don't know either. I saw the article and yeah, it's just sitting there hanging out without a top, I guess. Convertible model. I don't know. Is that the Q stands for? I don't know.
0: I I don't think it's spelled that way, but you know, on the one hand you can think, wow, that's a total bummer, brand new airplane. On the other hand, if they were flying it and they shelled out, it wouldn't look as good as it looks now.
3: That's true. That's true. Who
0: knows? Maybe we can get some details on that. We have a question by the way, coming up on the F-15. Yeah. And then the big news is, and I wanted to kind of end our announcements with this because it's a little more somber is we've had, at least to my knowledge, boat, our first I can't call it a fatality. What do you call it? Well, let's get right to it. Mr. Ray Janes, episode 102, he passed away.
3: Yeah, he did. Yeah. It's a shame. That's a bummer. Yeah, it definitely, it's a shame.
0: He wasn't our oldest guest.
3: No, but in the world we live in, people are passing away all the time. And it's a sad thing anytime that it happens to somebody that had so much to give. And he was obviously an amazing guest and we learned a ton from him, but it was great just getting to know him through the episode.
0: You know what I did, Boat? I went back to episode 102 and I added a little mm, about 30 second prelude to it to say, hey, everybody, you're about to hear us all happy and chipper, our normal selves. But I went ahead and announced that uh, Mr. Ray Janes had passed away. So oh, okay. naturally, our condolences to his, the Janes family and his squadron mates. And as you said, it's unavoidable. Comes for all of us, hopefully later than sooner. But yeah. All right, moving on. How about some questions? And uh, I've got a first one here I think would be a perfect one for you to take if you don't mind.
3: Yeah, I'll see what I can do. So this email was from Taylor in Virginia and he asked, "What's the training pipeline for naval aviators learning the F-16 and do they spend time learning from Air Force personnel or does the Navy have people and a curriculum to train in-house?" So, Jello, what was your experience with it?
0: My experience was we had our own training. In fact, we were our own model managers, as we call it in the Navy, so our own FRS. When I showed up, I went through it, and then I stayed long enough to turn around and instruct in it. And I was told by the folks that had been doing that a while that when we first received those F-16 A's and B's in 2002 and three, that our crews went down to Tucson and learned from the Air National Guard base. And I thought, did I hear it correctly? Did you have some overlap with the Tucson guys at one point? I was
3: interested in joining the unit and that kind of thing, but I never actually was a part of it or anything of that nature. I was at Luke in Phoenix. So
0: correct me if I'm wrong. They train a lot of the cats and dogs, right? Other countries. And
3: yes, that is true. Yeah. They do have some foreign military pilots that are going through there, learning how to fly F-16s. And typically they have their variant of the F-16 there on site so they can learn the actual airplane they fly. Yeah.
0: I guess to a regular Air Force guy, the Navy is somewhat foreign.
3: Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, sure. Sure.
0: Although our guest today actually was very generous about that, as we'll get to in a moment. But (laughs) all right. Hey, next, why don't we take a phone call?
4: Hey, Jello or Boat. This is Gabriel Brown. I've called with a few questions before, but uh, this time I have a big one. And I'm actually calling from Tennessee because I just moved up there with my wife. This is mainly a question that I'll ask about pilot training. I know, Jello, you obviously went through Navy training and Boat. You went through undergraduate pilot training in the Air Force. I recently graduated from college, and I am now commissioned as a second lieutenant, and hopefully within the next year, I'll be going off to undergraduate pilot training for the Air Force. I just wanted to know if either of you have experience or if you know somebody who had experience with getting through pilot training as a married man. It definitely makes your time more difficult, more stressful, even though I feel like I am prepared to handle both. But uh, if there's any advice that you guys could give, you know, that'd be great to hear. Just what you guys know about men and women who go through the program with spouses or even families. So thanks a lot. Uh, really enjoy the podcast. You guys are totally an inspiration to me and keep up the good work with airlines and the rest of this podcast. Thanks.
0: All right, Boat. I went through flight training a long time ago. I don't even remember if we had any married guys. You have any experience with this?
3: Yeah. So at least for my class, and I think it was pretty typical for when I was going through, So this was man, undergraduate pilot training. This is 2004, 2005. Mm -hmm. We had, I think around 20 ish kind of guys in the squadron. All my class was all male. What they did was they split us up into two flights for our training programs. Generically speaking, there was a single flight and there was a married guy's flight. And I don't know, The mindset, I didn't ask them why exactly, but the single guys and the married guys were all part of the, you know, their own individual flights, but we all interacted on the weekends and all that kind of stuff. I don't necessarily know if you could classify one group as doing better than the other per se. There's pluses and minuses, I guess. Oh yeah. Wives keep you on task. Which may not be the studying of materials in flight school and everything like that, or it might be, who knows? And if you have kids That's and not right. there's a lot of distractions regardless of whether you're married or single, whether you have kids or not. Oh yeah. So that was my experience going through and I'm pretty sure it's pretty similar to today, I would assume.
0: And I don't know. So I did put the question to our friend Ham, who was, I think, a three-time T45 instructor. And he says he thought they ended up doing better because they had someone at home to keep them in line instead of the younger guys going out and lighting their hair on fire every (laughs) weekend. So I actually was, dare I admit to all, I was living in sin with who's now my wife. And it was cute because she wanted to spend time together. So she'd come in and like watch me study. You know, and I said, okay, that's great. But I mean, come on, I got to think about my maneuvers tomorrow and everything. So, you know, but we were also, we had only met, you know, just recently. So she was wanting to spend time together. She
3: still liked you a little bit. is what you're saying.
0: Apparently. Yeah. I don't, I can't see her doing that now.
3: <laughs> same, same. I know that. Feeling.
0: Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Let's move on. All right. How about an email from Phil in Croatia? I'd like to hear your opinion on the upper age limit for joining the air force. From what I've managed to dig up, the highest age for joining the U.S. Air Force is 30 and possibly even higher with some waivers. In my country, it's only 22. I understand the need for an age limit because, as you mentioned on your podcast, a young 18 to 25-year-old body is going to fare better with all the physical strains of flying than an older guy's body, but I honestly think 22 is way too low. The Army, for example, accepts recruits as old as 30, so I don't know why the Air Force doesn't. All right, what do you think there, uh, about?
3: Yeah, I know for quite a while, you had to have started pilot training by, I think, age 26. And then they've fairly recently, I'm pretty sure it was 26, fairly recently, they've increased that age to 30, maybe even 33, something to that effect. And a lot of this is in response to uh, I heard that too. the pilot shortage, frankly, and just needing viable candidates to be able to mm-hmm. go fly airplanes. And I would kind of put it in tune with the whole college degree to some effect, as far as you know, the Air Force and the Navy and the Marines requiring officers to have a degree and and then flying only done by officers. So I think there is you know some pros to it, but there are some drawbacks, as Bill had said. And I think the bottom line is you know if you're capable of doing the job, whatever the job is, but in this case, flying airplanes, then go for it. And age, you know, hopefully isn't a barrier, but. I think kind of like he alluded to, there is definitely some longevity of career based on physical health and age that uh, definitely has to play a part in this as well.
0: Yeah. I think to Phil's point, you can obviously fly and there are many people who do into their later thirties and forties and even fifties, but it does get harder and harder. And so the way I look at this boat is that it's kind of a spigot. I don't know if that's a good analogy, but you can open it wider or narrower and let in more or fewer people. And the way you do that is by either relaxing some of these requirements like the u.s air force is doing or you can tighten them and it's not just age it can be physical issues right so if your vision is 2020 that's as low as we'll take oh we need more pilots okay now it's correctable to 2020 if you're up to 2100 yep. or whatever it is i think they just kind of open and close it as needed and i don't know the situation in croatia phil but my guess is based on that they don't need too many pilots that is a bummer though because i cut it out but in his email he's talked about that he's just slightly too old now and he's got regrets and that is true. So Phil, if you don't mind, we can use you as an example for everyone out there who's thinking about doing it. We'll do it because better that you try and maybe fail than sitting around working in some office building someday. And you look out your window and see a jet go by and you wonder if you could have done it. The window is closing. So that's right. jump Through it before you run out of time. Very true. Moving on. Let's take another phone call. This one's from Tyler.
4: Hi, Jello and Boat. My name's Tyron. I'm calling from Sydney, Australia. just had a question, a bit of a strange one, I suppose, relating to the movie Independence Day. And in the movie, we saw, you know, a uh, attack by hostile aliens and the U.S. response was to send U.S. Marine Corps F-18s up against the uh, alien motherships. And I was just wondering, obviously, completely hypothetical and just a bit of a fun, you know, what-if question, how do you think the U.S military as a whole would respond to such an attack from you know those exact aliens from the uh independence day movie anyway look forward to hearing your response love the show love all the episodes keep up the good work and have a great time all
0: right tyler well great question what would we really do if there was an alien invasion like independence day well, keep in mind, Hollywood's only going to focus on the characters they want you to know about. So I assume in that universe of theirs that the Air Force, in fact, we did see the Air Force. They were launching some sort of forward-firing nuclear missile from the B-2. I don't know, but maybe you can tighten me up on what that was exactly. But yeah, that sounds you know, about right. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought you could like rattle off the nomenclature. <laughs> you know, but anyway, yeah, right. <laughs> the Navy, I'm sure, was involved in the Army and everybody else. But what would we do if that really happened? golly, I guess probably not too far from that. I don't really know. We'd probably try to make friends. And if it, they were intent on destroying us, I'm sure we wouldn't hold back. We'd send everything we've got, including the National Guard and maybe the Civil Air Patrol. I don't know. Put bombs on them again. But I don't know. Boat, any thoughts if the Independence Day scenario happened for real? I don't know that we'd be calling up crop duster pilots.
3: I don't know, but he said he's a pilot, <laughs> so he can fly.
0: That's I pilot, I fly.
3: <laughs> I think you're going to it's like any new adversary. You have to learn as much about it to know what its weaknesses are and until you can start probing, so to speak, the uh, defenses and know that a nuclear armed missile from a B2 is going to work or not, uh, you won't know. So you have to give it a shot. So maybe that's kind of a plausible scenario, yeah. but it is Hollywood and uh, we all know how accurate Hollywood movies tend to be.
0: Or not. Now don't sure. forget the B2 missile was not effective. It was the virus and the kamikaze crop duster. So we exactly right. know what's going to save the day. That's right. But good question, Tyler. All right, uh, but why don't you take this last one, please?
3: Yeah, well, we have another email from Neil in Rhode Island, and he asks, hi, Jello. Curious to hear what you and Boat think about the F-15EX Eagle II, and that's a long name, or more broadly, <laughs> the idea of taking existing but aged aircraft and upgrading it to the latest and greatest tech and putting it back into production as opposed to just upgrading the existing airframes. Jello, what are your uh, thoughts on this one?
0: Well, I mean, I think it's a good idea, and I just, on the surface, think, okay, we probably don't need always all the best of anything, uh, like the F-35, I would say, or F-22. I think there's some use for some of those other aircraft. But just to be sure, I know enough about the F-15EX. I did put it to our past F-15 guest, Spidey. He wrote back and said, you know, don't forget, this is more than just a tech solution. The current F-15Cs are 40 years old and have been physically just beat down from a long life of nine Gs. And he says that the main advantage of the EX will have over any other allied fighter is that it carries twice the missile load. And there are plenty of missions not requiring fifth gen or stealth like Homeland Defense For one, and the eagle can get airborne really quickly. So something like three minutes or less from the uh, siren sounding, the klaxon or whatever, however you pronounce that. And so you know you need a mix of fifth and fourth gen. And yes, the fifth gen is expensive. These are less expensive, and as I understand it, boat they're not just read generated older aircraft they're building these from scratch now granted they have to stick with certain things because otherwise they'd have to flight test everything all all over again yeah but they're making it as up to date and new as they can and it sounds like a very capable aircraft
2: yeah
3: i think it's a great idea frankly i think probably along the budgetary lines i think i wouldn't be surprised let me put it that way i would not be surprised if all of a sudden there's a f-16v block 70 block 80 whatever label they want to put in the back end of it that looks very similar to this program and all of a sudden you've got a lot of the same types of stuff that you see in the f-35 on the inside of an f-16 but it's still in the shell of an f-16 the airplanes are proven and like spidey had said you don't need stealth all the time a10 is proof of that one and i think the proof is in the history of the airplanes that we're talking about here they're totally capable platforms. They just need a little bit of, you know, increased capability.
0: Well, and Neil's question, we truncated it, but he does talk about new old planes and you brought up the F-16. He specifically brought up the Super Hornet. And I think it's easy to look back at history and say, we should have built this and not that, or more of these or whatever. But You know, when the late 90s were around and all we were doing was hauling bombs over Iraq for the last 10 years and not dropping them, in my opinion, anyway, this is certainly not the official opinion of Boeing or the Navy or anyone else, but hey, we need an airplane that Doesn't cost a lot, but can bring back more bombs that we don't drop and has more fuel so that when we are by the ship, we have more options. And so the Super Hornet's wing is 25% larger. It can bring back a lot more bombs. It carries a lot more fuel. It's arguably less agile, at least in some regimes. But it was a stopgap because the Tomcat was going away and the F-35 at that point was just a dream. So Yeah. yeah, I guess you're right, Neil, but it's been a very good aircraft. I mean, now the Blues are flying it every carrier's got them. And so is it perfect? No, but there's no aircraft that is, I think. Yep. All right, boat. Well, let's get to the feature interview. Now you probably know of Dan Hampton. I've heard all about him. I forgot though, that you were a CJ guy. So besides just being a good buddy and helping out on the show and probably needing a break down there in Jamaica, I thought it'd be good to bring you back to talk about this. So before we get to it, you've listened, any big picture thoughts?
3: Big picture thoughts. You know, we don't get into as much in the interview of the history as uh, maybe some of the listeners have been asking for at some point. So maybe we'll have to revisit mm-hmm. some of that. But otherwise, I thought it was a great interview. And uh, he's you know clearly very knowledgeable and he's got a lot of good connections. So he's able to talk smartly to a lot of things with respect to uh, using the weapons and, and everything like that. I won't ruin all of the uh, details and whatnot, but there are some fun back and forth banter with uh, Navy and harm and all that good stuff. But uh, yeah, I thought it was a great interview.
0: All right, well, without further ado then, let's get to Wild Weasels with Dan, Two Dogs Hampton. All right, joining me today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast is retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Dan Hampton. Two Dogs, do you know why I'm so glad to have you on the show today? Jello, I can't think of a reason why. You'll tell me, right? So people will quit asking. My gosh, they've been asking for you since I started this show years ago. No, it really is an honor to have you on here. I'm just really looking forward to hearing about you and your books and your career, but welcome.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate the invitation, and I had no idea I was in demand, so thanks. You just made my day.
0: (laughs) Uh, You're welcome. Well, there's you and uh, Matt Hall from Australia, who we still haven't had on. Of course, everyone asked for Chuck Yeager, but that horse has left the barn now. But you're in the limelight in this realm of fighter aviation. And so people keep saying, get them on the show and here you are. So we're glad to have you. I feel like you're a bit of a distinguished visitor. I should probably read off your list of accomplishments, but truthfully, I didn't study up well enough to do that. So why don't you uh, tighten us up on where you're from, what you did in the military, what are you doing now? Where'd you go to school? You know, the usual stuff.
1: I'll give you the abbreviated version, but before I do that, you probably don't know that Chuck Yeager's boss is still alive. Wow. He helped me write one of my books called uh, Chasing the Demon. Ken Schulstrom, he turned 100 years old last Holy month. Holy smokes. Uh, so if you're ever interested in getting him on, let me know, and I'll see if I could make that happen for
0: you. All right. Sounds good.
1: He was the one that was offered the X-1 program to begin with, and he turned it down. So really interesting guy. As for me, I started flying when I was a teenager. I thought it would be a good way to meet girls. Didn't work out that way. <laughs> but the flying bug stayed with me. My father and grandfather were both Marine pilots but they were definitely not the great Santini. Uh, There was no pressure ever to go down that road. And to tell you the truth, I didn't really decide to until I was halfway through college. I wanted to be an architect and that's what I went to school to study. And I don't know, you know, you remember the eighties. I mean, flying was pretty cool. Then the movie had just come out. I had worked as an architect Mm -hmm. for several summers and thought that flying fighters would be a lot more interesting. So that's what I did. And like you, you know, I went through all the Jumped through all the hoops to get through selection and all that stuff to get into pilot training. Two years later, ended up in a line fighter squadron in Germany. It was my first assignment at Spangnallan Air Base. It was a wild weasel squadron. It was weird because it was mixed. It was the only mixed fighter wing in the Air Force. It was F-4Gs and F-16s. And the F-4G had the guy with the 80-pound head in the back seat and all the electronic gizmos and things. And he was supposed to find the missiles and the radars, and then the F-16s were supposed to kill him. And that's where I was when we uh, went off to Desert Storm the first time in 1991.
0: All right. And then uh, just give us some highlights of the rest of your career and what you're doing now.
1: Made it through Desert Storm okay. Uh, I was too young and stupid to realize uh, how dangerous it was. It was a lot of fun being a weasel. Very satisfying, as you can imagine. After that, I was given the choice of coming back to the States and teaching guys how to fly trainers, which didn't appeal to me at all, or doing a remote assignment, which we all have to do. Korea wasn't open, so I went to Egypt, and I was an exchange officer with the Egyptian Air Force for a year. Came back to the States after that into a lantern squadron, you know, low altitude at night, truly crazy, 100 feet through the mountains at night. I'm glad I'll never do that again. Then I went to U.S. Air Force Fighter Weapons School, and after that, mind-numbing, humiliating experience, I went to uh, the 20th Fighter Wing at Shaw Air Force Base in South Carolina. I did a tour there. I went, had to do the obligatory staff job. Uh, at least it was a flying staff job at Langley oh, and nice. came back to Shaw in time for the second Gulf War. In between all that was Kosovo, which I don't really count as a war. But the second Gulf War was an all F-16 kind of wild weasel, close air support, Lollapalooza, which was, again, a lot of fun and very satisfying. When that was over with, they wanted to send me up to the Pentagon and return for a promotion to 06, and I politely declined. I did not want to make coffee uh, in the five-sided puzzle palace. So I put in my papers and I got out. Mm -hmm. I bought a really big boat, went down to the Caribbean, grew my hair out, tried to look like, you know, ponytail and all that. Tried to see if Jimmy Buffett was telling the truth about the Caribbean and he wasn't. Uh, I went into business for a little while and then I got back into the flying game with a private military company in some of the stands and in Iraq. I did that for three or four years, three years actually. And in the middle of all that, I was approached by a guy I'd sent some writing to to write a book, a memoir. And I very nearly got killed for about the 100th time and decided maybe all the luck in my bag had run out. And so I wrote the first book, the Viper Pilot book. And to my eternal shock and surprise, it uh, made the New York Times list and took off. And the publisher said, do you have any more ideas? One thing led to another, and that's allowed me to basically retire from the private military game. And just write books, which makes my wife happy. And that's what I've been doing pretty much ever since.
0: Well, that's awesome too, dogs. True confessions. I've not read any of your books. I'm really sorry. That's okay. I'm sure they're awesome. And I'm going to get a lot of grief from you and the listeners, but you know, I don't know so many hours in the day and I look forward to some. So I'll consider that my homework for you coming on the show is I'll go grab at least one or two and catch up on lost time. All right. So you're being a little modest here because I read in your bio that you, uh, didn't just go to the air force fighter Weapons school. You went to top gun at some point and you happened to be in a certain tower that was not treated very well at some point, which earned you uh, some injuries and a purple heart, right? The Cobar towers.
1: That's true. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. I should point out that, I mean, I-, I went to Miramar, but I did the togs portion the air force exchange stuff it wasn't the full up flying program that the navy guys did so
0: okay gotcha.
1: i'm always real careful to put that in parentheses after that the air force weapons school though is the real thing and
0: the full six months of joy
1: <laughs> you know it then yeah oh it sucks. yeah
0: Well, I don't (laughs) only anecdotally, but yeah, (laughs) no, that's good. All right. So of course you wear that patch, you get Mm -hmm. credibility, but you've got experiences and all that. And so today I feel like there's a lot of different directions we could go, but we're titling this episode, wild weasels and you are the authority, at least in my book. And so let's talk about that if we can. And let's start at the beginning as far as what it is. Now we'll talk about how it originated, But can we just start off with when you hear the word wild weasel, two words, I suppose, what does that mission mean?
1: It means you get to go out and pick a fight with surface-to-air missiles and anti-aircraft guns. And if you survive, you kill them. That's essentially it.
0: So you're kind of using yourself as bait for them to come out. And when they do come out, you get in a little scuffle?
1: Yeah, the whole idea is if they shoot at us because we're trained to deal with them, then they're not going to shoot at other people. And once they shoot at us, Then they've revealed their position, and then we'll go in and we'll kill them, which we got very, very good at.
0: And how did this mission come to be? What was the first iteration, if you will, of what became Wild Weasel?
1: Well, it came about during the Vietnam War. And in fact, a good friend of mine, and you could get him on your podcast too, Alan Lamb, was the very first man to kill an SA-2 in Vietnam. They were F-100s then. A very, very basic, I mean, they were basically just going out with bombs and a gun and an EWO in the back seat, you know, to help them pinpoint the radars. But it was truly the wild, wild west. Those were some very, very brave guys. And again, the whole idea is if they shoot at the weasel, then they're not shooting at somebody else. And then the weasel's in the best position to go kill them. It evolved from that into the F-105, also in Vietnam, the mighty thud, which I would love to have flown just because it's so big and manly. And then after Vietnam, it passed to the F 4G version, which sort of occupied the space between the wars. The only time the F 4G ever went into combat as a Wild Weasel was in Desert Storm. And most of the time, they had the job of sitting back and picking up things on their display and then passing it to people who could go kill them. The Weasel Squadron that I was in had a different mentality, and our F 4s actually did go in and shoot Maverick missiles at some radars and some other pieces of equipment. The other wild weasel squadron, the mixed one, was down in the south flying out of Saudi Arabia, and they didn't do any of that. They stayed 20 or 30 miles away and just you know fired an anti-radiation missile once in a while. And I've never been a big believer in anti-radiation missiles. I think that just leaves you a, another problem to solve another day. I think it's suppressed if it's blown into little bits and pieces all over the desert floor. And that was sort of a mentality we always had. If we kill it, it's done. It's finished. It's not going to come back and bother anybody else.
0: Yeah. Well, and I've got it on my list here to discuss some of the different weapons. So I'm going to sit on that one for now, but I want to ask you about the EWO, as you put it, the electronic warfare officers. Were these guys already in the fighter squadrons that were just maybe specially trained for this, or did they pull these folks from somewhere else and make them go jump in the back of the F-100 or the F-105?
1: Oh, the first guys? No, they'd never seen a fighter before, and the fighter pilots had never seen an EWO before.
0: Really?
1: A lot of them came from the B-52 because the B-52 had electronic warfare officers. And they, it was all volunteer, of course, so they couldn't be forced into it. And I don't know why some of these guys wanted to do it, but that's how our expression, our motto, if you will, came about, because they asked one of these EWOs, his name was uh, Ray Donovan, do you want to go do this? Do you want to be a part of this? And he said, you want me to ride in the back of a little fighter with a crazy fighter pilot up front and get shot at? You've got to be shitting me. And so YGBSM is on all of our patches. It has been ever since. Yeah, It's a good story, and it kind of sums up the mentality back then. But uh, we're still (laughs) kind of looked at a little bit cross-eyed by most people because, as you know, I mean, you generally try to avoid missiles and guns, but that's what we do. We go out and pick fights with them.
0: Well, but that's, I guess, the point, right, is we have dedicated crews that are a little crazy and a lot trained to go do this, and it's probably better to have a handful of them that are special than to make everybody try to react to them, ideally, like you said, kind of bait off on them. But also, not everybody wants to have the skill or maybe the equipment on the aircraft to go after the SAMs because that can be very risky. So you've got some specially trained folks to do it.
1: Yeah, and the cool thing about the F-16 is you flew Hornets or Tomcats? Hornets. Hornets. Good. Single seat. Okay, good. The F-16 single seat, you know, and that caused a lot of consternation in the F-4 community when the mission passed to the F-16 because they just didn't see how one guy could do it all, which to people like you and me, we don't get that mentality because we can, like I said earlier, fly through the mountains at night at a hundred feet and drop a bomb within a foot of where you want it to. It's no big deal. We don't need the guy in the back anymore we did it first. They were very talented, very smart guys, but the technology evolved in conjunction with the airframe so that we had some very good specialized equipment like an HTS pod. Originally, it wasn't that good, but it got better and better and better to the point where when we locked onto something with the HTS pod, it would slew whatever weapon we had selected right onto it and lock it on too. So the workload for one guy wasn't any worse, mm. right? And with only one guy, you know, it's a lot easier of a game.
0: Well. Can we talk semantics for a minute? Because wild weasel, what is that? In other words, is it a mission? Is it a mindset? Is it the aircraft itself? And do you know anything about the origination of that term itself?
1: I think it's all of that, actually. Okay. They picked the weasel because the weasel, the weasel is a little slinky, fast, dangerous animal that kills poisonous snakes if you continue that metaphor and think of the surface air missiles and the guns as poisonous snakes, then you want something that specifically goes after things that other animals avoid. All right. So that's where that came from. Besides, it looks great on our patch. It's this little insane looking wild, you know, weasel, you know, staring at you. Mm-hmm. I would say more than an aircraft, it is a mission and a pilot okay. because the aircraft has continued to change. And I have no doubt that at some point, You know, in the future the F thirty five will take over from the F-16, like we took over from the F four. Yeah. It's really a mission, I guess, to answer your question.
0: Well, and in the early days, of course, like you said, technology is advanced, even to the point of asking me about the F-14 versus the F-18. You know, they needed a pilot in a Rio in the F-14 because at the time the radar was just so cantankerous, frankly, you needed someone just to run that. But by the time just a few years later with the F-18, they were able to make the APG sixty five sufficiently easy that one person can do it. Although we do still have two person F-18s in the fleet for different missions. But that's kind of my point is it's a mindset and a mission and it requires special training and special, even today, as I understand on the F-16s, and we'll get to your experiences in the block 50 or 52s. As part of it, do you think that when you're specializing in that, it just means that you're maybe specializing at that to the Sacrifice of something else. So, in other words, these days, an F 18, an F 16 pilot, we have to know a lot of different things. But if you're in a squadron that is assigned this role, maybe they can give up some of those other missions. And I wonder if that's true, like in the uh, F 100 and F 105 squadrons at all. And uh, it sounds like it was in the F 4, and whether that's true today. I'm not sure that was very clearly asked. No, I I understand what you mean. Okay.
1: The F 100 and F 105 guys were all basic. F-100 and F-105 guys, their big mission, especially Mm -hmm. the 105, was dropping nukes. You know, that's what the F-105 was designed for, a big, huge, thundering engine to get you in and drop a nuke. They never lost any of that, even the guys that went to the weasel squadrons. What they did was they specialized in the weasel role, the the F-105G. I don't know how the Navy breaks it up. We have what's called a dock statement, which is these are the three or five missions that you are responsible for in order. And like an F-18, an F-16 squadron does both air-to-air and air-to-ground stuff, right? Right. which is really cool and a lot of fun. There are some F-16 squadrons whose primary mission is close air support or surface attack. An F-16 Block 50 fighter squadron or fighter wing, its primary mission, number one on that list, will be defense suppression. But you still are responsible for everything else an F-16 can do. So you still have to maintain your currency and proficiency and tactical expertise at surface attack at air to air. Thank God nukes are gone. We don't do that anymore. Yeah. You know, but all those other missions that we have, we still have to do those. It's just in a descending order of priority. And so the flying hours and money and range time and everything is allocated accordingly. Right. But F-16 guys don't go to a wild weasel squadron and stay there like the F4G guys used to do. Mm-hmm. We still move around between different types of F-16 squadrons. So, you know, I had a tour in a close air support squadron. I had a tour in a lantern squadron. I kept coming back to the Block 50, but it's turned into, rather than a completely uber-specialized mission, it's turned into just another mission that an F-16 pilot can do. You know, I'm kind of in favor of that because it's something that everybody's, even if you're not in a weasel squadron, the expertise and the knowledge you had as a wild weasel is going to pay off when you're doing close air support or surface attack. Mm -hmm. So I think the Air Force did a pretty good job of delineating that over the years.
0: Would you say it was mostly an Air Force term, wild weasel? Because I think of either Vietnam Naval Aviation, from what I've read, of course, and then even in my own experiences in the F-18. And we flew with the harm. We would fly, depending on what you're doing, if you were in Fallon or Nellis, they might put you on these different types of missions. But I don't think we ever used the term wild weasel in the Navy.
1: Yeah, you didn't. I have a good friend who's also a writer. You've probably heard of him, Steve Kuntz, mm. you know, Flight of the Intruder, that guy. Yeah. You know, we've talked about it and The Navy's primary, even now, unless I'm much mistaken, it's a weapon that they will load up and they will use for each strike, okay? And they will protect that strike going in to do whatever it's doing, and then they'll fall back and go home, back to the boat. The Air Force typically looks at it more, I want to say, strategically than tactically. We figure that, again, if we kill the radars and we kill the SAMs and the guns, We don't have to worry about them. The Navy is more, let's keep their heads down while we go in and we do what we need to do. And then we'll come back out. Mm. And that's okay because they know that the Air Force, the wild weasels will eventually kill them. They use the seed stuff as self-protection, basically, I think, for their strikes. At least all the Navy guys I ever flew with, you know, looked at it that way. So it's a little bit of a different mindset.
0: And I wonder if it comes down to the ability to deploy. In other words, when Desert Storm happened or uh, the 2003, right, somebody, they probably said, hey, we need this squadron out of Shaw. We need that squadron out of so-and-so because these guys are CGs and those guys are CJs. But when the Hornet squadrons get on a carrier, the four of them, generally speaking, all four squadrons do the same missions with the exception of forward air controller airborne fact a which only the two seat squadrons will do and that's why they'll keep a f squadron of super hornets around for a long time i presume so i think that the upside of that is everybody kind of has that mission and can do it the downside is nobody's truly specialized in it and to your earlier point i might one day go fly a harm mission and the next day go fly close air support in the third day go fly air to air and i need to be proficient at all those
1: Right. And, you know, we saw this, especially in the second Gulf War. The first Gulf War was more like a combination of World War II and red flag <laughs> rule. Nobody really knew what to do. You know, it was kind of strange. It was fun, but it was kind of strange. The second Gulf War was much more the way a modern military, I think, should approach those sorts of situations. We sent all the F 15s home after, I think, 10 days. Because they were needed. Because the F-16s, even when we're acting as wild weasels, we're going to be the first end of the target area anyway. So who better to sweep the target area than the weasels on their way in? And if there's an air threat, they'll deal with it. And then they'll deal with the SAM threat. And then everybody else can go do what they want. It's a sort of a force multiplier. Yeah. And I think that's what the Navy has to do by virtue of the fact that you guys are great. You can go anywhere in the world. You don't care about airspace or bases or anything because you're on one, right? That's the big advantage of carrier aviation. The downside of that is you're limited to the amount of sustained heavy hitting you can do yeah. by the very nature of being on a boat. Yeah. So that's why the air force and the Navy, at least the fighter end of things seem to work so well together because we kind of offset each other and complement each other Yeah. to your point. I mean, like I said, an F-16 pilot is an F-16 pilot. He can do all those missions. If he's in a CJ squadron though, that's the primary mission. And what we found is, The CJ squadrons were being tasked more and more to do joint air-to-air and SEED or DEED because they're very complementary. I mean, you're the first into the area. You sweep the area, you shoot down anything flying, and then you look for things on the ground that are coming up and you deal with them. So it's good to have a lot of CJs around because they can do both of those things very well, and then all the close air support guys come in and do what they have to do.
0: All right. Well, we've talked about some of them. What other aircraft have been involved with this mission over the years? That's it. Yeah.
1: The F-100, the F-105, the F-4G, and then the F-16.
0: Okay. And then the Navy, I think, used uh, A-4s at some point in this, A-6s, and then A-7s and F-18s. But again, it's a little different because it's, at that point, just a mission not so much a, a mentality. Well, it's still a mentality, but I don't know. I haven't quite gotten my head around this yet, but the listener can read between the lines. So let's talk about weapons because you kind of disparage the harm a little bit. First off, just give us a quick Reader's Digest uh, summary of the harm. We've talked about it before on the show, but what is the high-speed anti-radiation missile?
1: It's a waste of a wing station. <laughs> uh, you know, the whole premise of the harm is what they want it to do is to be able to home in on a radar and use the radar's emissions to guide the harm into the radar so it can blow up and kill the radar. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. The warhead and the harm isn't very big, so it would have to have be phenomenally accurate, and it's not, so that's a big problem. The biggest problem is it depends on the threat doing exactly what you expect it to do, and you and I both know that is a, a very dangerous assumption. So you're assuming that these guys operating these radars are just going to turn them on and leave them on and let the missile home in and hit it. And even if the missile does home all the way in, the best it can do really, barring a a fluke, is damage it. And again, for some missions, that's okay. The way the Navy uses the harms to to make these guys switch their radars off or to go to some degraded mode or to duck a little bit, that's fine. Mm -hmm. For a minute or two while the bomb droppers get in there and do their thing. Again, our mentality has always been more of let's kill the damn thing, and then we don't have to worry about it tomorrow. Yeah. And we would use harms. Yeah, I, I shouldn't disparage it too much. We would use harms as decoys. As you know, it makes this humongous, billowing, thick white smoke trail when it comes off, and everybody on the ground can see it. So we use that to our advantage. You know, we'd fire harms at things from a couple different directions and they would slew their optics over to try to find the airplane, or they'd go to some degraded mode on their radar, and they'd get all cringeworthy because, they, you know, he's got these harms coming. in. And then while they did that, the other weasels would come in with different weapons and just completely obliterate them. Yeah. So it has some uses, but I will never forget one of my first missions in Desert Storm. Here I was, halfway around the world, in the right place, at the right time. I knew exactly what was going on, and I had the wrong weapon. I could see the missile site on the ground and I fired my harms at it and they went God knows where I had nothing to use, but a cannon, (laughs) you know, you know, we worked around that. We found different ways of using mixed loads Mm -hmm. on airplanes. We loved, at least when I did this, we loved to go out on what were called six packs and you get six CJs, three flights of two, but we're all operating as one flight. You have a superb weapons mix. You know, you've got a couple of harms, you know, maybe one or two, and you've got CBUs, you've got Mavericks, you've got other things. And you can really take care of anything and anybody that comes along with something like that.
0: How many harms have you fired, training or otherwise?
1: 17.
0: Well, that is 17 more than I've fired. Um, so I've only heard <laughs> about the white smoke and seen videos, but, you know, I think it's an interesting point that you make because it comes down to the mentality, right? So like you said, Hey, I want to thump this thing and I don't want it coming back tomorrow. I want to be done with it. It's just like a, uh, an item on your list at home, right? Your wife wants you to do something, get it done. You don't want it to come back tomorrow. Well, I think with the uh, Navy, at least the way that we operate a lot, we don't necessarily have the luxury or maybe the ability to do that. And so what we'll do instead is create a window, right? If I can pre-plan, to shoot so many harm over such intervals that they rain down so often and I can give myself a couple minutes for, like you said, those bombers to get in and out of there. Well, that's good enough because now I've accomplished my mission, which is to bomb whatever it is they wanted me to bomb, which could be that site, or it could be the command and control center next to it, or it could be an airfield or revetment or whatever. I think it, again, just kind of comes down to the distinction between the Navy and the air force. And by the way, I hope you don't take any heat from your air force buddies or anyone else for being uh, fairly complimentary, because (laughs) I think when it comes right down to it, I agree with you. We're all in this together and we do work well together, but there can be some parochialism as well. So at any rate, I think it's a mindset difference between the two.
1: I think you're right. And like we said, that's just the very nature logistically, if nothing else of being on a carrier, right? The Air Force will do a couple of things as soon as it moves into an empty space of ground and builds an airfield overnight. They will always put in a huge weapons dump. They will put in a huge fuel bladders. They'll build a golf course, and there'll be a swimming pool. (laughs) So that's just what the Air Force does. Mm -hmm. And they do it phenomenally well. And logistically, they can afford to bring in huge amounts of very diverse weapons that the Navy just can't do because you're so limited by your space. Right. What we saw was we would see the Navy being allocated more the, the tactical packages, mm. you know, supportive ground guys and, and other things, tactical areas, battlefield area things. Yeah, we did a lot of that, too. But when we needed to take out a sector radar or go after mobile SAMs that the harms have difficulty with, we would go do that. And that suited us just fine. Yeah. And the Navy it was really good at that. Like you said, they'd come in under a blanket of harms. Everybody on the ground would go, oh, no, no. And they'd duck just long enough for the Hornets to drop their bombs. And and that's fine. That's perfectly fine. So whether we planned it or not, we always seemed to work pretty well together. Yeah. You know, I had nothing but uh, respect for naval aviation. So no
0: worries there. I appreciate that. So harm being specific to this mission prior to that, the Shrike and a few other weapons before
1: (laughs) Shrike. I forgot about that thing.
0: Yeah. Come on my question. And it won't be a particularly aha one, but the question of course is, all right, so what weapons do you use now? You've already talked about it. The reason I'm poo-pooing my own question is because it doesn't matter, right? If you're going to thump this target, you're going to use whatever you've got, number one, but also just about anything that goes boom will work because you've got clusters, like you said, you've got Mavericks, you've got Rockets. I mean, is there anything you won't use or, or anything you like to use? I, again, it's just whatever you've got or JDAM, LGB, what? My preference,
1: weather permitting, was to always carry a Maverick or two and a couple of clusters of CBU-87 or Wickham d wind corrected munitions dispenser it's a basically a cbu that corrects for winds it's pretty cool it's a glide weapon nice but again what we would do and i think what made the 20th fighter wing so exceptional at this was we actually would get our frags down i don't know well i do know who did it at the top level to make sure we got this but the frag always read best available they never fragged us for a particular weapon so the flight lead or the mission commander would then look at the target or targets and say they are SA-3s today mm. or they're SA-2s today, we can go with a couple of harms and maybe airburst Mark 84s. <laughs> or, you know, hey, it's a mobile SAM hump today. We're going against SA-8s and SA-6s. Let's load up Mavericks. It was up to the mission commanders and the flight leads to pick the best ordnance based on the mission. And it really, really worked well. Yeah. I had some weapons that I favored. If we couldn't find the SAMs or we killed them, And we had some left over. We could then get re-rolled to do close air support or something else. But, I mean, I used it all. I even used the 20-millimeter cannon on gun sights many times. We'd come back with the gun all shot out because, I mean, that's, you know, five passes and 100 rounds of pass. That's potentially five more guns you could take out. And we did that. We did that all the time. So I would use anything that I had. There were some weapons like the harm that I would use in very small quantities. And I wasn't a big believer in dumb bombs by the second Gulf War because we had l g b s and and other things right, but we would make it work with whatever we had
0: well, so the process is probably not unlike. Weaponeering as we would call it. I don't know if you use that same term or JMMs or whatever, but in other words, yeah, what did. is my target? Okay. What is the weather expected to be? or Are there any collateral damage concerns? And then you go through this process and in the end, you come up with the best weapon pairing and delivery. But in your case, you guys have a few that give you flexibility that you've used before and that you're familiar with, like you said, with the Maverick, which is again, a very versatile weapon. Did you particularly use IR or laser Maverick or both?
1: We used them all. The double yeah. IRDs, you know, the the sand in the desert plays hell sometimes with optics. But, oh, yeah. you know, sometimes we'd go out with EO Mavericks and IR Mavericks so we could go back and forth. We used Mavericks a lot, at least in Iraq, because a lot of the surface air missile sites were in urban areas. They put them there on purpose because they knew we were hesitant about right. completely obliterating right. half the city. So we would use point weapons if we could lgbs certainly they're okay didn't like lgbs as much because it still required you to basically fly a predictable flight path while you're lasing the bomb on in although we would do some buddy lazing from things but we would go into this you know situation permitting i love to get fragged to go to kill box whatever and kill anything that moves because we would go in with a six-pack and we would set up a wheel overhead like a cast wheel mm with two guys way up high and then the other four down here, and we would bait and switch. We'd get them to come up and look at us, and the guys up on the top were basically spotting. You know, if they came up and shot without using their radars, we could see the smoke and the dust from the desert floor as they fired this thing. And our avionics were like yours. They were really good. You could slew a, a target designation box over where the smoke trail came from and designate them on it. Now you've got coordinates. Or you could just follow the smoke trail back to where it came from there were lots of different ways to do it. And we got very creative with this. Yeah. And we're able to do quite a bit of damage.
0: Well, and that was a great segue into the next topic, which is tactics. And of course, on this show, we always have to be careful not to disclose classified stuff, and tactics usually fall into that category. But I guess just in broad terms, unlike a stealth fighter or bomber or other missions, particularly like you said, coming in the 100 feet, where surprise is important, in the Wild Weasel mission, you really kind of, putting out the vibe at the bar, aren't you? Like, Hey, look at me.
1: You know, stealth is nice, but we're not fighting the, the old Soviet union, you know, anymore. We're not having to to break through a concentrated in-depth IADS in most cases. And so we wanted to be seen. Mm-hmm. We would just brazenly fly right through, you know, you remember the Intel maps that the Intel pogues would give you and it just looks like death, right? I mean, there's oh, yeah. red circles everywhere. And they're like, you know, we expect 30% casualties. I'm like, nah, don't do that to me. <laughs> You know, it looks bad, but it's never that bad. And even if it is, it just means more things we can shoot at. Yeah. And we would, but like you said, we'd put out the vibe. We would just blitz in intelligently though, based on what we knew. Right. And we had a very specific set of comm that we would use between us. We had data links and some other things. And so we always had really good situational awareness, you know, like you did. We would talk to the guys in space too you know, and they would data link things, you know, from space directly into the cockpit. And you're like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So we had a lot of information and based on that information, that's what the mission commander or the flight lead would do. And he'd go, all right, you go here, you go here, this is what we're going to do. And we did it.
0: I want to ask you about the HTS, which is what the harm targeting system, right? In the F-18, when I put a harm on, I can look on my DDI, one of my displays, and see what the harm is seeing to a point. you got to learn the different HOTAS and different symbology. And we could use that for either pre-planned shooting or target of opportunity. But we didn't have a particular special pod that we could put on like the F-16. What can you tell me about HTS and how you guys employed it?
1: Imagine flying with one eye shut. That would be the harm. And then flying with both eyes open, that's the HTS pod. Okay. It had a much better frequency coverage. It was much more sensitive. And we would get in, it was called range quality solutions, hmm. different range qualities based on how many radials you're cutting, you know, from emissions uh, to triangulate. And the accuracy would continue to get better and better and better as the pod continued to refine, you know, what it was seeing. And the best thing is once you get a hack on a position, it could go off the air and you still know where it is, unless it picks up and moves, yeah. which the mobile stuff does, but that's okay. What really works cool is when you have an HTS pod, it goes under the chin of the F-16 out of the engine. You have an HTS pod on one side and you have a targeting pod on the other side, you know, real targeting pod, like the sniper pod or something like that. Now you get to play this dance in the cockpit with all your displays of something's locked on here, you know, the weapons will automatically slew to it or I can select different weapons. I I have a whole menu of choices that, you know, the F-105 guys and the F-4G guys never had. Yeah, Um, And it it really is a crowd pleaser. I mean, because you've got the choice to do quite a lot of things with all of that stuff.
0: Because your HTS display is probably just artificial what characters on a black background or something like that. Yeah. But now you have the electro optical. And so they're talking to each other and you can look through and zoom in. And did you ever fly with a helmet? Absolutely. Jordan helmet. Oh yeah. Okay. And so same thing, right? You could get a cue in your head. Look it was
1: after the wars. Yeah. You get a cue. Yeah. See, that's the cool part. If the HTS pod ranges in on something and say, I've got a Maverick called up, an EO Maverick, mm-hmm. it'll automatically slew the Maverick seeker head over. And I can look through the Maverick and go, That's an sa six, or I could say, no, that's Abdul's banana stand. And he's just got his radio on, you know, (laughs) you can really do some good work that way. And with the targeting pot, it's even better.
0: Is there, I think I know the answer to this, but I'll ask the question anyway. Is there like a, an element of the fighter weapons school that is dedicated to these tactics and procedures and the comms? Uh, I mean, I have to think it is right. In other words, you guys didn't just make it up with your six pack that day. Hey, you guys stay up high. We'll stay down low. This is all prescribed, and some patchwares have studied this and come up with best procedures, yeah?
1: Well, we kind of did it in reverse. When I went through the fighter weapons school, it was the same year the CJ basically had been around, but that's the first year that the CJ really also became a fielded piece of equipment. So I was in a terrific position because there weren't very many F-16 guys that had been in a wild weasel wing like I was at Spangolum. So I took what those guys taught me, and they taught me a lot, and then combine it with what I learned at fighter weapons school. And when I got to Shaw, Shaw was sort of the lead fighter wing for developing CJ tactics, and it was a blank book. We had a, a real good ops group commander and a wing commander who both said, hey, you know, let's run with this and f- see what we can come up with. And we came up with a lot of things. Some things worked, some things didn't. Mm-hmm. Through the process of elimination, we figured it out. And by the time, you know, the second Gulf War came along, we, weapon school actually sent people to our fighter wing to see what we were doing. And then they took that back and incorporated it into the, the fighter weapons school syllabus. Yeah. For once I was in the right place at the right time.
0: <laughs> it sounds like you were, I mean, you're here with us today, so we know the ending, but it sounds like arguably you were at least 21 times. Is, is that how many sites you are credited with killing? Yeah.
1: You'll appreciate this being a Hornet guy. You know, a lot of harm shooting units would fire a harm at something. And then if the site went off the air, they'd claim a kill, which (laughs) isn't accurate. Okay. The sites that they credited me with were sites that I saw blow up and I had to film for it. You know, they were strafed or they were hit with a Maverick or a CBU or something. So those were just like
0: an air to air kill.
1: Yeah, exactly. Those are destroyed sites, not a site that simply went off the air and you assume that the missile got it. Those are hard
0: kills and I want to talk about those, but again, just to be clear, if I only need it to either get blown up or come down for a minute or two, that's still okay. Yeah. But that's not what we're talking about here per se. All right. Now if I'd read your books, two dogs, I would probably know the answer to this apologies again. Um, but what are either some of the ones that, uh, you're more willing to share because they were hairy or or the ones that just, when you close your eyes at night, you, that's the one you go back to cause it was something going on. Uh, you know, Come on, tell us a story on one of them, at least.
1: Yeah, there's one that will never leave my head. It was in March 24th of 2003. So I, I'll never forget the date either. And we were fragged as a wild weasel mission going up to some kill box near Baghdad. But after coming off the tanker and heading you know, up into Iraq, there was an emergency call for CAS, close air support, in a town called Nasiriyah. The Marines were there. They were up against something they hadn't planned to to be up against. And a unit had been cut off, a company had been cut off. And to complicate things, the weather was getting worse. Anybody who was over there will tell you they'll remember the big sandstorm. You remember in the movie, The Mummy, when you see that big wall of sand, you know, with the mummy's face in it coming at you? That's what this looked like without the face. I mean, it was the, the sand wall went up to probably... Uh, it was awful. It went from the surface up to about 30,000 feet and I could see it coming. It was coming up from Saudi Arabia and everybody was heading for the tanker and going home. And these guys were screaming on the radio, you know, they were cut off. And by the time we finally figured out where they were, because they weren't where they thought they were. And by the time I had enough gas again, I think I refueled seven times that day to go help them. The sandstorm had hit. And I had to go down through that sandstorm, and I had IR Mavericks, which were useless in the sand. I had IR Mavericks and air-to-air missiles. The only weapon that I could use finally was the cannon. And I came down through that sandstorm, and I found an Iraqi armored column coming up to the Marine's position. And I destroyed the first vehicle, jinked off to the side, came in from behind, and I got the last vehicle. And I had about, I don't know, two or 300 rounds left. So then I made a couple more passes just to, you know, really screw them up because they couldn't go anywhere. They're trapped. You know, the first vehicle's dead and the last one's gone. So they're there. They're sitting ducks. And when I came up out of that mess, I had 900 pounds of gas and I was a hundred miles into Iraq, and there were no divert fuels. It wasn't a stupid thing to do because it was wartime, but I had counted on the tanker being where he said he was going to be. And the tanker had left. And so now I'm out of gas, out of options, basically. And God loved the one tanker that was left who was listening to all this. And he said, I'll come get him. And that brave son of a did. He crossed into Iraq with a tanker and he met me halfway and we refueled in the sandstorm. And he went home to Diego Garcia or someplace. And I had to pick up. There were a bunch of stragglers that got caught up above the sandstorm, all F-16s. And they were all led by pretty junior flight leads, and they really didn't have a clear idea of where to go. And so I flew down to Ali al-Saleem in Kuwait. There was no instrument approach, so I made one. I flew down through the weather, and I took a fix on the end of the runway, and I looked at the radar altimeter coming down, and I basically made a straight-in approach, and I data-linked it to everybody, and then followed them, and there were 12 of us. And we all landed at Ali al-Saleem at night in the sandstorm about one minute before it just completely went, walks off. And I remember thinking at the end of that day, I'm sitting there in the cockpit and I'm shivering because I'm sweaty and I'm cold. And I also haven't eaten in 10 hours. And I thought that was the day I used up all my mojo. I thought, good God, it doesn't get any worse than that. Uh, So that's one that I'll never forget.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, (laughs) although arguably it wasn't necessarily a a Sam site that you took out, but the point is, right, is brothers in arms that you showed up for those folks and then someone showed up for you. And we've had Sluggo on this podcast. I don't know if you know, Marco, Sarah, he was real instrumental in changing some of the paradigms for the tankers to be able to go do stuff like that so they could save butts like yours. So that's pretty cool.
1: I buy those guys drinks every time I see them.
0: Yeah, for sure. Got a couple listener questions I want to run at you, but first, actually, I have one more thing on my own list. Terms. We talked about wild weasel. What about iron hand? Is that a term you guys use or was that maybe the Navy's version? I think the Navy used that a lot, but have you heard of that one?
1: Oh yeah. I think the Navy uses it a lot. The first weasels in Vietnam used it and that's just dropping bombs on a SAM site.
0: Like iron bombs. Okay.
1: Yeah. Iron bombs. We called it deed destruction of enemy air defenses. Right, But it's the same thing.
0: Yeah, And then I think I read that Iron Hand might have also had the connotation that you had to be ice water in your veins, kind of steady hand to do the thing you got to do. How about Magnum? Somebody once asked how the term Magnum came to shoot a harm. I gave the answer that I had found somewhere else, but I'm going to see if you know the, uh, or if you have maybe a different answer.
1: I have no idea. What did you hear?
0: I had heard that the folks that had to go shoot those, like the wild weasel pilots, were credited with particularly large genitalia for the guts that they had to do that mission. And so there's a certain prophylactic that goes by the word Magnum. And so they thought that Ah. that was appropriate for those guys. Okay. So when I said that on on a listener question on a previous episode, nobody told me I was wrong. So let's go with that.
1: Yeah, let's go with that. That's the goodest explanation that I've ever heard. That's fine. Sure. Yeah, no, we always use Magnum and we'd say rifle when we launched a Maverick.
0: That's right long rifle for a slam er which has got a maverick seeker on the uh and anyway a right. little extra tidbit right now i guess since it is 2021 we should clarify that back when magnum would have been coined it was all male pilots and certainly there are i assume you even <laughs> flew with some female cj pilots today anyway on to the listener questions two dogs austin wright wants to know about the origins of the you got to be shitting me. We talked about that. So let's go to the next one. Mm -hmm. Kyle Fleming wants to know about toad decoys. Were they helpful in combat? Did they ever save you and how many you can carry? Let's skip that last one. But did you ever do anything with a ALE? What was it? 55, something like that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I love those things too. One day we were up near Baghdad. There was just two of us. We'd split off from a larger package and we were supposed to go roam around a kill box. But the weather was bad. It was like from, I don't know, maybe 800 feet to 10,000 feet. And it was clear above. So we're up there, you know, looking for something to do. And there really wasn't much when we got re-tagged to do basically Killer Scout road recce. Somebody from space or somewhere had picked up vehicles moving out of Baghdad. What they said was a company-sized unit of tanks moving out of Baghdad. We want you to go confirm that. And I said, you got to be shitting me. You know, I always teach people never to go down through the weather when you can't see what's below you, but, you know, in a hostile environment. But they said, well, this is directed by whoever that head guy was over there. I'm like, okay. So there's a lake west of Baghdad. I figured if I descended down over the lake, nothing's going to shoot at me. And if I can get into the clear under the lake, then I could go do the road wrecking. If I didn't get into the clear, then I'd just climb back up and say, I'm unable. Well, I got into the clear, about an 800-foot ceiling. And I come screaming across that lake at just, I mean, I think the store's limits was 550 knots, so I'm at like 549 knots, just screaming across that lake to get to Highway 1, which is coming out of Baghdad. I come off the lake, and I remember looking up the road towards Baghdad. It wasn't a company-sized unit. It was one of the Republican Guard's divisions, a whole armored division. And all of a sudden, I'm there. And they just went batshit. I mean, they shot everything at me. Something else I'll never forget, the red and the yellows exploding against the clouds. And I just reacted like you would or anybody. I just reacted. I streamed the decoys. I had 60 chaff and 60 flares and the pod was on. And in the span of about 10 seconds, all the chaff and flares were gone. As I came over the road, I could see the tanks and I let loose. I was carrying CBUs. I don't know if they hit or not. I wasn't going to stick around. I mean, they got close and I went screaming off. I went about 10 miles before I climbed up back through the clouds and all the toad decoys had been shot off. Wow. Okay. And I used all the chaff and flares and it was again, one of those missions where you don't really think about it until you get back on the tanker, you come off the tanker and head home and you think, God, what almost just happened. So I'm a big believer in the toad decoys. I love those things.
0: Cool. Yeah. They were, kind of just coming out uh, when i was getting ready to get out or i think i went somewhere else where i wasn't really involved with them so i i never learned that much about them but i think in the f-16 uh, you had them somewhere better than we did in the f-18 which is if you streamed it in the f-18 and then you pulled more than a few degrees of angle of attack and afterburner you were going to burn the thing off so we always had these limitations but i heard they were pretty good yeah they were awesome Pat Card wants to know, how has the Wild Weasel mission changed with the advent of fifth-generation aircraft? And we kind of touched on this earlier. Not just stealth, but with information sharing, sensor fusion becoming the norm, and triple-digit SAMs becoming more proliferated. So, Two Dogs, kind of a future, if you will, of the Wild Weasel mission. Because the aircraft has changed, but so have the threats.
1: Yeah, they have. And I always looked at the Wild Weasel mission from this standpoint, which is anything that kills a SAM can be a wild weasel. And I remember I completely scotched some guy's presentation when I was on the staff, some civilian guy, they paid him several million dollars to come up with this scenario. I think it involved Iran and their vaunted SA-10s or whatever. You know, he had this big long B-17 over Schweinfurt conventional kind of thing going, and I'm looking at him just shaking my head. And he said, well, how would you take out this SA-10? I go, hey, I'd send in a SEAL team or special forces to blow it up. And this one over here near the coast, I'd send in the, that was back when there was a battleship in the Navy. I'd go send in the surface Navy to shell it. Who cares if it doesn't come from an airplane, if it's within range of their guns, just blow the damn thing up. And it's suppressed. Guess what? So I think people need to be flexible in their thinking when it comes to that. Mm. We have lots of different weapons that can do that. I'm not a big advocate of the whole space thing, just because, So far, it hasn't really worked beyond intelligence, you know, providing intelligence, which sometimes they do very well. I would even use drones. You know, everybody always asks, well, when's the fighter pilot going to be replaced by the drone? And I always say never. That's right. You know, would you get on a commercial airliner without a pilot? No. (laughs) Commercial flying is a lot simpler than the kind of flying that we did. Yeah. You're not going to replace a fighter pilot. But a drone... By default, sometimes the drones would be sent into an area ahead of us, and the guns would start to shoot at them, and we could see where they were, which was great. So I'd use drones as decoys. Right now, they're not a weapons platform, really, not against the kind of late-generation threats we're going to face. Yeah. But that's part of the problem. People are always fighting the last war, you know? Yeah. They look at Afghanistan or even Iraq, and they draw faulty lessons from it. We go up against, you know, a resurgent Russia or China, even, and it's going to be a lot different.
0: And I think there is a pivot to the Pacific or whatever the buzz term is, at least for the Navy to kind of get back to, hey, we better get good at air to air again, because there are some significant threats out there. Same for the surface to air. And I think your point is well taken. Hey, whatever it takes... To eliminate this thing. It doesn't have to be fighter aviation, which coming from a couple of guys like us is probably almost hearsay, but or heresy, however you <laughs> pronounce that. You know, it's just like, hey, get it out of the way so we can go do what we gotta do. And to your point, I mean, there are drones, I think a lot of folks don't even appreciate this, that we can launch from the F-18 and F-16. Mm-hmm. The tactical air launch decoy, right? Talb. So those have been around since Desert Storm One. Right, right. A lot of different ways to saturate the IADs and do all these different things. All right, Scott Morris, who also helps with the show, actually, acknowledged that you were in a joint F4-F16 squadron. He wanted to know what it was like being in a mixed squadron, which you've already touched on. But a second question, says, when the F4G retired, were capabilities lost in the Wild Weasel mission? And just based on what you said before, I'm guessing you're going to say because the F16 was already so much better, it was just different. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, that's what I would say. The EWOs, the good ones, we kept around because they had a, a knowledge of electronic warfare and the threat. I mean, they went to school for that. Okay. Right. I give credit to them because I learned an awful lot from some of those guys. Some of those guys, you know, were not good. They washed out of pilot training and they hated pilots, especially single seat F 16 pilots. Or maybe it was just me they hated. I don't know. <laughs> but I learned a lot from the good ones. And what we saw is a lot of those guys went on to serve on staffs, and they were heavily involved in some of the planning for our our latest conflicts. But there was no real loss of capability. Like you said, it just morphed into something different. The tactics changed because the platform changed and because the weapons changed. And it all changed for the better. We were never really that happy with the harm, so we figured out other things that we could use. I think we were a lot more flexible than they were, they were kind of as a whole, not, you know, individually, but as a whole, they were kind of married to the past a bit. Mm. And, you know, they were real good at shooting arms at SA-2s and SA-3s, but they couldn't handle the mobile SAMs. The airplane just couldn't do it. It couldn't outmaneuver an SA-6 or an SA-8. Well, we could. So we kind of expanded the capability, built on everything that they had done and just expanded it to cover the evolving threats.
0: Gotcha. Victor wants to know if you've ever fired the harm in self-protect mode. And I will say in the Navy, we had self-protect mode and it was always said, don't use it.
1: I never did. And here's why there's not time. Okay. If something is already shooting at you, you have a mock four missile coming at you. The harm is never going to get to it before the missile gets to you. And besides when you shoot it, you've just now shown everybody where you are. You, know, you just lifted up your skirt and said, here I am. So no, I, I never did. I trusted to the maneuverability and the self-protection systems on the F-16 to protect me. And they did.
0: Okay. Maybe we can say we turned on a bright light in a dark room to say, here we are. Cause the other one, anyway, let's not go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Jevo wants to know, have you ever, <laughs> we can clean that one up anyway. Okay. Jevo wants to know, have you ever hit a Sam site after being shot at by them? I guess, isn't that kind of the point of the Wild Weasel mission? Is, oh, yeah. Yeah, okay.
1: Absolutely. That's kind of the point. Um, there was one day
0: yeah.
1: oh, in April of the last Gulf War, and it was a perfect day. The visibility was great. The weather was great. The tankers were all on time. We had all the right weapons, and we were up trolling around north of Baghdad, which is where all the Iraqi units had moved. Mm-hmm. By pure accident, we stumbled on an SA-3 battery an SA3 site. So there were like four, you know, launchers and then a sprinkling of guns everywhere. It was perfect. We stumbled on it because they were operating silent and they came on as we flew overhead and like, holy cow, it's right underneath us And as soon as you rolled up and looked and focused your eyes, you could see, you know, that very distinctive pattern SA3 set up and they started to shoot. They shot the missiles first, not the guns. And again, you can't miss that big, huge billowing smoke trail and the thing coming up at you. And so we split up and evaded and did our talking and then came back in. We called it the raptor attack because we'd come in from different directions. And whoever got targeted would react and defend. And whoever wasn't targeted would prosecute the attack. And we do that several times. You know, we go back and forth on the way in and keep them guessing and wiggling. What we found out that day was there were more SA3s down there than we thought. So, yeah, I mean, they kept shooting at us, and we kept plinking away at them. We got them all, the whole battery.
0: Wow. All right. The final two questions, I think we've covered. One's from Beef about the harm. One's from John about Top Gun versus the Fighter Weapons School. So I think we'll refer them to earlier in the interview. This has been fascinating stuff, (laughs) Two Dogs. I want to be respectful of your time. Again, I need to come back to your books, but what's the most recent one you've written, and are they all nonfiction, or are you writing some fiction? Tell us about your books. Oh,
1: I'd love to write fiction. I wrote a novel called The Mercenary, which is based on true events, as most good fiction is. But the nonfiction books are the ones that keep selling. And so I keep trying to get back to writing fiction, and they won't let me. The first one is one that I think you'd probably appreciate the most just because there's so many similarities between The Viper and The Hornet. So you might want to start with that. And a lot of that, you'll nod your head and go, yeah, I know what that's like.
0: And what's the title of that one? Viper Pilot. Okay. Okay.
1: The other ones are all different forms of aviation history. I wrote one called Lords of the Sky, which is the evolution of the fighter pilot. That was a lot of fun to write because I got to go fly some of those airplanes. I'm glad I didn't live in a day when I had to fly a Sopwith Camel. I wouldn't have liked that. I didn't like it when I did it. It's really neat because it covers the 100 years between 1918 and the second Gulf War, basically. Uh, I wrote one about Lindbergh. I wrote one about who I think really broke the sound barrier first, which was not Chuck Yeager. Mm. I had one come out in August called Operation Vengeance, which is about the Yamamoto mission uh, in World War II and who really shot that guy down. And I approved it. Debrief style, which you would appreciate mathematically. Absolutely. So there's no doubt now who really shot down and killed Yamamoto. And then Friday, I actually finished the next book that is not about aviation, but it's about a heroic Marine officer during World War II in Korea. It's called Valor. And it should come out hopefully maybe in December or early next year.
0: Fantastic. All right. Well, I've got some homework to do clearly. <laughs> and so we can use that as a segue into wrapping this up, which is what does the future hold for you? Are you a full-time writer now?
1: Uh, as full-time as I can be with a couple of kids. That's the beauty of being a writer. Your time is your own. Mm-hmm. And as long as you keep making good books, you can keep doing that. So I spend a lot of time doing things I like. I would consider myself a full-time writer. I do it every day.
0: Good for you. All right. So I've got one final question, but to make it final, I've got to ask you another, which is what have I not asked you about the wild weasel mission or weapons or aircraft or people or whatever that we need to think about for today's episode there, two dogs.
1: It was perfect. Thanks.
0: (laughs) Uh Oh, my eyes just went crossed too many, uh, negatives in my own question there. Apologies. All right, man. Well, uh, appreciate it. We'll let you go. But before we do Dan Hampton, two dogs. Now I had a Navy friend whose call sign was two dogs and I think he just had a couple dogs at home, but I don't know. Is that your story or is there something more exciting?
1: Uh, No, there's an old Indian joke about an Indian father naming his son. And if you're going to bleep about me saying what YGBSM is, then I know you're not going to want to hear the full story of how two dogs came to be. (laughs) The genesis of it in my case is I've got some Indian in me. And when I get out in the sun, I turn this kind of red, brown color. I look like an Indian. My big nose helps. That combined with a few other things led them to name me two dogs in my first squadron at Spangdahlem, And then in the Air Force, if you keep a call sign throughout three commands, like PACAF, USAFE, and the United States, you keep it forever. Or if you fly with it in combat, it's yours forever. You can never be renamed. I, I went into Desert Storm on my first tour, so it's been with me ever since
0: cemented in okay i don't think the navy has anything quite that formal that sounds pretty official because i think a sufficiently buffoonerous act no matter when it occurs can still earn you a call sign later in the navy but all right so did it become a self-fulfilling prophecy do you have two dogs i don't see anything in the background there
1: i do as a matter of fact have two little husky puppies around here somewhere they belong to my children all right yeah so it is prophetic yeah (laughs)
0: Well, I mean, if you live with it long enough, I think you just like subconsciously have to go do it. So
1: I suppose so. And they put it on my uh, whoever put together the Wikipedia page on me put it on that too. So I, I can never get rid of it.
0: Oh, yeah. So it is written, so it is done. Well, two dogs, I would say that this has been a very average interview, and I'm just glad to have you uh checked off my list, so people will leave me alone dude, i'm totally kidding. Um, this has been very fun, and uh, I could see why your books are selling well you've got a lot of experience and the articulate ability to explain them so really appreciate it oh that's what I was going to ask you about your books actually. I assume on Amazon pretty much everything's on Amazon these days, but any place else, people can find all these books in one place. do you have a website or social media? Do you want me to point people to following you or anything? Yeah,
1: I've got a Facebook page that the publisher makes me keep. Okay. I'm not big into social media, but that's a good way for people to get a hold of me and they do. All right. And I always respond. It may take me a while, but I always respond. I had a website, but it wasn't performing like the social media page does. So there's a Facebook mm-hmm. page and you can get the books at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, airport bookstores, you know, things like that. So they're everywhere. Amazon's probably the best. Yeah. And if they like the books, please give me a review. If they hate the books, please don't say anything. So that'll help.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, we sometimes on our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, we'll list different books on there. So we'll definitely, I think there's probably already one or two on there, but we generally try to release them with the episode. So we'll be sure to do that for you. Do you do some speaking as well?
1: Yeah, I belong to a speaker's agency in New York. I love doing that stuff, but it all died last year, obviously for the COVID thing. So yeah, hopefully it'll pick up again. And if anybody out there listening, listening, to your podcasts is interested, then by all means, let me know. Sure. That's always fun.
0: Well, if I can grab a link from you on that as well, I'm happy to put it in the notes. And I really do appreciate your time for uh, stopping by and talking about wild weasels today.
1: No, it's my pleasure, Jello. And if uh, you ever want me to come back and talk about anything else again, you know how to get a hold of me.
0: Sounds good. We'll do that. All right. Big thanks again to Two Dogs. What a fun interview. Although, Boat, I don't know, man. I felt like a comedian at a really tough crowd. I I thought my jokes were funnier than he did.
3: You know, you're just starting (laughs) your stand-up career, so you'll get there. Don't you worry about it.
0: Oh, boy. Well, you know, the more I think about this, having recorded it and then listening to it later, it was so hard for me in the interview to get my head around. Of course, I was learning too, but the whole wild weasel thing. And I think it really comes down to what he said towards the beginning, which is for the Air Force, they think of this as strategic. Hey, look, there's an essay whatever out there. We don't want it there. So go beat it to a pulp. right? And the Navy, on the other hand, for the reasons we talked about during the show is look, that's not our mission. We just need to get these guys in and out. They need four minutes and this is what's going to do it. I think as I listen to myself again and the mission itself, I can see now why, Hey, go out and thump these things. We're going to call that wild weasel. Yeah. Back in the old days, we called it in the Navy iron hand and a few other things, but these days we just do what we got to do. But anyway, sorry to come back and dominate all this, but what did you think there about
3: no, I thought it was good. And um, like I mentioned before, we didn't touch as much maybe on the F-100, the F-105. And just like in my Century Series interviews with those guests, we didn't talk about it really much there either. But you know, the F-100 was a very raw platform. It was you know the first concept of seed, if you will. So there wasn't really a whole lot of you know, material per se for us to talk about, nor I think for you and Dan to talk about. And then same with F-105, my guests never had flown the mission. So that was kind of, you know, maybe not the best person to be asking about those things, but it was still somewhat relatively new. It was really the second platform that was fully dedicated to this. So I think one of the things that we've learned over the past, what now 50 years since Vietnam, give or take something like that, 50, almost 60 years that it's a very unique mission set and YGBSM and the weasel on the patch and everything. I mean, we take a lot of pride in our squadrons for going to do this mission because kind of like was said about close air support the air assets are support assets for the ground personnel well cj pilots are support assets for the rest of the mission package the strikers yeah. and so we take a lot of pride in making sure that none of them get shot down and we will put ourselves in harm's way before we ever let the strikers get put in harm's way and you talked about you know some of the ways to go into a an environment that's defended by an integrated air defense system or an individual sam or whatever the case may be Well, we're going to hopefully avoid the area completely if we can possibly do it. But if we can't, now we've got to figure out a way to deal with this threat. And that can be lobbing missiles in there preemptively, or it can be as a reaction to if somebody's getting shot at to take it on the target. But it's a very prideful mission, one that all the people that are involved in the CJ mission and some of the F-35 stuff is coming online, but they're never going to carry a harm. It's just too big a weapon unless they're not going stealthy. And that's not necessarily the point of an F-35, at least up front. Yeah, I mean. CJ squadrons are dead serious in their job, which is protect the strikers and get the mission done. So strategic, but tactical simultaneously, I guess.
0: Yeah. And I don't think, I'm guessing those F 16 CJ squadrons are going anywhere anytime soon. But can you remind us? I know we got your background way back on the air to air missiles or weapons, I should say, episode, but you were in a CJ squadron. Where was it? And what did you do? Anything real world?
3: I never had anything real world. I deployed to Iraq. And at that point, you take the harms off and you load up bombs and go to war that way. But I was in the 14th fighter squadron, Masawa Air Base in Japan, the Samurai. So if you ever meet anybody that's from the 13th fighter squadron, just call them a minus one. They know what that means. <laughs> they should respect our authority. Okay. That being said, you know, loving relationship as always with your uh, sister squadron there at the, uh, at the base. But, you know, we would go to red flags and, you know, CJs are kind of the weird, we're block 50 F-16s. So we have a slightly better radar. Then the Block 40s and the Block 30s, we have an interrogator, which the uh, Block 40s and Block 30s don't have. And so that allows us to participate a little more in the air-to-air environment than they will traditionally. And so you'll see them in the striker role. You'll see us in the air-to-air. So initial ingress, shoot down whatever air picture we can, and then go establish a seed cap and look to prevent the SAMs from striking the, the strikers, if at all possible. So that's kind of the generic overview, if you will, for a CJ squadron and, and the role they play.
0: So, two dogs wasn't a big fan of the harm or the high speed anti radiation missile. But do you know anything about this Argum that's coming out, advanced anti radiation guided missile? It's supposed to be better. Like it's going to kind of use other seekers to figure out where the target is so it could still theoretically home in on it and do some damage.
3: Yeah, without getting into too many specifics, you can just think of, of the Argum as a harm on steroids. Okay. It's got better location capability. It will be able to, you know, find the threats the traditional way using RF uh, energy and everything like that. But you can also now incorporate GPS position guidance into it, improved inertial guidance. One of the challenges that the HARM has to deal with is the attitude of the aircraft at launch can play a factor in how well it is able to guide on the thing that it's going after. And that really is just a, you're at this point at this altitude going this airspeed and the target last we saw because it's queuing off of. RF energy is at this azimuth both you know in the vertical and then the horizontal and so it has to hopefully rely on its inertial navigation unit inside the missile to know where that is and so if all of a sudden when you launch that thing cuz there is a little bit of a delay you pitch up or you put a, a certain amount of g or some yaw into the aircraft at some point that may mess up the inertial guidance and it creates a lot of challenges for the missile but hmm. flip side of that now you've got this Argum thing that they're throwing out there and you've got GPS coordinates so when you take that shot it knows where that target location is because it has gps coordinates to go to that's a very broad strokes kind of thing yeah but the idea there is even if they turn the rf energy off kind of like semi-active radar missiles when you turn those things off it goes stupid harms don't go stupid necessarily but the location of where it's going is less refined than what the argum is
0: and the point that he made is absolutely valid. If you have a small warhead, you have to be more precise in order to be effective. Exactly right. And so that is not the case on that weapon. And I think if I read correctly, the argument shares, I don't know if it was the warhead, it might've been the motor, but at any rate, there's publicly available information out there. People can go check out if they're interested. Yeah, for sure. All right. The other thing is I don't mean to take away from two dogs's point about they took the CJ fleet or CAF, I guess, information, and then turned it into the weapons school. I would say, I don't think that's totally unique. I think that's fairly common. I know in the super Hornet, for example, when it came out, the first place it went was to the fleet in the Navy and then top gun. I was there at the time. We said, Hey, what are you guys seeing with this? This is what we think based on the numbers, but we don't have one here. We're not flying it. So we want to make sure we're teaching the right thing. And so they would either bring one up or some instructors would go down and fly it. And so I have to think that's fairly common. But any thoughts on that, Boat? Have you heard any other experiences on that?
3: I think one of the challenges that the weapons school, maybe Top Gun deals with this as well to some degree, the weapons school, we haven't gotten episodes on those. So in terms of what they are both doing in terms of a comparison are similar but different at the same time. For the weapons school in the Air Force, you've got your graduate's in the squadrons, just like you do in the Navy, but then you also have the instructors at the course that are teaching the course. Well, they need to get that information from somewhere. And so what they're always doing is looking at real world Intel and taking all of that. They work with the operational test guys as well to make sure that the equipment that we are utilizing is up to speed based on the current threat. And we get some emerging threats or something like that, because the adversary is all, they have a say in the fight as well. And so they're going to try to push back. And if there's a change to their tactics, a change to something that the weapon is less effective than they need it to be, or whatever the case may be, they will make those adjustments and changes. So there is a conversation that is constantly happening between the fleet or the CAF, in our case, the combat air force and the weapon school to make sure they're getting all the information they need. But part of the bureaucracy that is an organization like the air force or any large you know fortune 500 company is it takes time Mm. to change tactics in the manuals and from the source document that you're training new pilots to and so what you'll see is we have the uh, air force tactics techniques and procedures 3-3 vol five and all the other ones that are associated with the appropriate airplanes and whatnot but all of those are on an update cycle and so the newest and latest and greatest stuff may not always get out there right away right that is a challenge
0: yeah and they're doing so many things and a, a squadron that gets the new equipment is out doing it every day theoretically so they can say especially in the old former instructors might be in those units and so hey what are you seeing here so Yep. All right. Well, hey, we can wrap this up. Uh, I guess the last thing is I put myself on report for not having read any of his books. But now I'm going to share the pain with you, but maybe you have. Have you read any of them?
3: Nope. Unfortunately, Uh, uh, I can't say that I have. Yeah, I do though, have a laundry list of books that are in my queue, some of which came from you and some of which are uh, in the guise of uh, learning a bit more about future episodes. So Uh I will happily take anything that he's willing to hand out. But, But yes, this is a big year for reading for me.
0: Okay, good. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, but we'll cover that another time. So, and I get books from folks all the time, which is great because I put them on the shelf behind me when I'm doing YouTube and various things. So that's good, but all right, but Well, hey, why don't we wrap it up? We want to announce our new Patreon strike lead, Dan Norfolk, and also remind everyone that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest, and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Pretty standard there. Now, Boat, let's see, in about a week's time, there is a holiday coming up, and I just, if you don't mind, give me a second here, a little public service announcement. Please don't wish me or Boat or anyone else a happy Memorial Day, all right? If you don't know, Memorial Day is a federal holiday in the U.S. for honoring and mourning the military personnel who died in the performance of their military duties while serving in the armed forces. So it's not Veterans Day. It's not someone who died later like Mr. Janes. It is a day to commemorate those people. We can honor their sacrifices, I guess, by being happy for the freedoms that they provided in their ultimate sacrifice. But I don't know. It's just a pet peeve of mine. And I guess people are trying to be friendly, but I think they should know what it means. So am I blowing this out of proportion here, Boat?
3: No, I think that's an appropriate way to respond to what is a solemn kind of day of remembrance or day uh, and observation. That's right. And I think one thing that, you know, if people are looking for something to do is go find a military cemetery and go pay your specs that way. In my mind, that's the kind of thing that would matter. I think Yeah. whenever the day comes that I pass away.
0: Well, usually the day before they have volunteers putting up flags. And then that day they might have ceremonies who knows with this current world situation, but yeah. And there's American cemeteries all over the world. It seems like, so no matter where you are, you can find something, but I just wanted to say that. All right, but well, Hey, why don't we wrap this up? Thanks amigo. Enjoy the rest of your training down there in Jamaica or wherever you're going tomorrow and appreciate your help as always.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. Hey, I did want to throw out one thing that I had be a fortunate opportunity to do last week was speak to one of our listeners via the debrief in uh, Patreon listener. Oh, Lucas was on the phone with me. So I got to chat with him for like 45 minutes. It was awesome. And I really appreciated getting to, getting to speak with him and answer the question that he had random, fun, all kinds of great stuff. So shout out to Lucas for that. And, uh, thanks for passing them on to me, Cello.
0: Oh, you're welcome, Boat. I appreciate the help because that is one of the benefits of the two higher tiers on Patreon. And I do several of those every week and I enjoy them. It takes time, but I enjoy getting feedback. And yeah, Patreon is just a really fun community. If you're interested in supporting the show and getting a little more information uh, and including one-on-one with either me or Boat or a past guest, head on over to patreon.com and look for the Fighter Pilot Podcast and check it out. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week. Next week, we have the 79th anniversary of a rather significant World War II naval battle. And that episode will feature our first repeat guest. So you won't want to miss that here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Until then, take care, be well, and we'll see you next time.
2: You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions got a question for the show email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101 that's 877-622-4101 be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website fighterpilotpodcast.com for exclusive content and to help support the show check out our patreon page thanks for listening
0: To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.